You're listening to the Yoga Teacher Resource Podcast. Knowledge, techniques, and inspiration for your teaching and your practice. I'm your host, Mado Hesselink. If you're a yoga teacher who loves learning, is passionate about spreading the benefits of yoga, and desires more resources to support your teaching, you're in the right place. Let's get started with today's episode. Hello, yoga teacher. If you've poured your heart and soul into the art of teaching yoga, but kind of ignored the business side, this episode is perfect for you. My guest, Amy Epolity, is the author of The Art and Business of Teaching Yoga, along with her partner, Taro Smith. She is also the founder of 90 Monkeys, an online education source for yoga teachers, and a popular teacher on Glow.com. In today's episode, Amy and I discuss the relationship between the art of teaching and the business of teaching, and how to integrate them so that they magnify and amplify each other instead of being two separate things that kind of have to coexist. If you treat the business side of yoga like a necessary evil that you have to slug through, you're always going to struggle with it and it's going to drain the joy out of your teaching because we do have to have that side. So I hope that this conversation helps to infuse some of the magic of yoga into the business side. In it, Amy shares a framework for teaching a meaningful yoga class that keeps students engaged, excited, and coming back for more, plus a new way of looking at the structure of a yoga business that helps yoga teachers reduce overwhelm and know what to focus on. The merging of the art and business of teaching is one of my favorite topics, so I was super excited when Amy suggested that we discuss this. This woman is super smart, super talented, and she's been around a long time. So let's just jump right into the conversation and hear what she has to say. Well, I would love to start by hearing a little bit about your history with yoga and specifically your introduction to the teachings of yoga. And I don't know if you started out in more of a fitness environment or if you were exposed to the philosophy first, but I'd really love to get a sense of your history with it. Yeah, so I was actually exposed to yoga in a fitness environment, but the teacher was certainly not fitness oriented. She was, she was sort of from upstate New York and this was, she was coming into New York City to teach. So she was total nature girl, um, mystical, uh, very much about the philosophy and about the, the sort of mysterious parts of yoga. And I was immediately attracted to that. It was such a change from the fitness environment we were in and it came at a time in my life when I was searching and I was questioning the mean girls in high school. I was only 16 and uh, it was just what I needed and I didn't know that I needed it. And so the fact that she was sort of unapologetically being a yogini rather than a yoga teacher that was going to make us sweat and do a flow and that kind of thing was actually what attracted me to want to do more of the yoga. So yeah, that was my beginnings. I love that. And I love that you use the word unapologetic. Mm -hmm. Because when we as yoga teachers struggle with bringing the deeper teachings of yoga into our classes, I think a lot of times it comes off as not being confident. And if we're not confident in the teachings, it's not going to land. Wow, that's really, really great insight, actually. <laughs> yeah, that, that the lack of confidence and the kind of feeling apologetic for doing it or feeling like it's not going to land well is just energetically going to leave a mark that's not so fun for the student, not so intriguing for the student. Yeah, really good point. So what do you share with the yoga teachers that you work with? How do you, do you have a process that you lead them through to help them gain confidence in sharing the teachings of yoga in their classes? We do. In fact, it's so funny. One of the next um, 500 hour level modules that we have on our calendar is the uh, how to, in sort of, what is it called? Um, theme integration. It's really about how do you, how exactly do you bring 
the deeper teachings of yoga into your class. And the process, I would say, is it's twofold. A lot of it has to do with obviously getting the teachings. I mean, reading the texts and going to philosophy lectures and um, studying with teachers who have a sort of um, familiarity with the texts and the stories and myths of yoga. And once you have that knowledge, the second part of that is then to contemplate and to sit with it and, uh, and decide how does this involve me and how can I examine my own life in the context of this teaching so that it becomes your own and it becomes your own experience, if you will. And, and at that point, when you go to stand in front of a class, you're not sharing some esoteric teaching. You're actually sharing a teaching that you have immersed yourself in, you've digested, you've chewed on a little bit, you've applied it to your own relationships, your own struggles. And in turn, you're then able to relate it to other people. You're able to make it relatable, um, to make it, uh, what's the word? Um, palpable and relevant to the students in front of you. So it should also fire them up to get them stoked about living an examined life. That's that's the twofold process. And then we have a whole formula actually for that that's probably too um, complicated to bring into a podcast, but there's a whole formula actually that I came up with. It's pretty cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Do you think part of the problem is that the teacher has not integrated what they're teaching themselves or do you think that there's a disconnect between the audience and the storyteller that's a super excellent question um i think it's both i think it's both i think that if you're if you're sort of telling the story in this way that feels really abstract because you haven't actually brought it into yourself then people will tune out but conversely i think what you're saying is true that there's an expectation among yoga students that yoga is fitness or that yoga is purely physical or that yoga is an activity that they go to, not this outrageously amazing practice that's going to fuel their sense of self-reflection and self-inquiry for the rest of their lives, right? They don't know that. So, in, so what I tell our students um, in our trainings is, and this is, I'm talking about teachers, right? I tell our teachers, get out there and be responsible for sharing what yoga actually is, right? So you need to be pretty much upfront about it with the class that, hey, there's a, there's a perception out there that yoga is an activity or it's, it's something that we do to sweat and stretch and bend in Sanskrit, but I'm here to tell you there's more. And if you're interested, <laughs> in living a life of self-reflection, of knowing who you are, of mining the depths of your unconscious to find out you know, who you could possibly be that's more than what society is telling you you should be, then come with me, right? Like, then let's do this together. Let's rock this, right? Let's call to the yoke. That's what Krishna does in the Bhagavad Gita. He calls to the yoga, to the yoga, to the yuj, right? Like, let's do this. So it's sort of like saying, it's sort of like you're going to be a little Krishna up there telling Arjuna, like, are you ready to stand up? Are you ready for this? You know, in the book, it's a battle, but are you ready for this challenge? Are you with me? And I think that, you know, some students will go like, no, I'm not. <laughs> Like, I'm not with you, one, because I'm going to just dig into my perception of what yoga is, which is like only physical and it's an activity. And some are frankly scared. You know, they're, they're scared to take up that challenge. But I think that as yoga teachers, it is our responsibility to yoga and to the lineage of yoga and to the history of yoga and to the vastness that is yoga to tell them what it actually is, particularly if we know what it is, right? So, um, and then, you know, you might lose half of your following right there. And that has happened to me in a number of locations where I've moved, you know, and people are like, who's this woman? <laughs> and what I do is I just am patient and I build it back up. 
and I wait for the people that want to stay to go tell their friends, hey, this yoga class, this is the real deal, come with me, and more people join. And then before you know it, it could be six months, you have a packed yoga class again. But you have to have faith to take up the challenge with your students and, and, and sit in the authority of, not in a power over, but like in the authority of like, I know what I'm doing and I've studied this and I'm here to teach you what that is. And if you don't like it, maybe find another, another teacher, right? So that's, that's what I would say. <laughs> yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, think about the difference between teaching one way because you think it's going to be popular, mm -hmm. but not teaching the way that is in your heart to teach, Right, you're going to burn out. And that's another major complaint. I have a group for yoga teachers. It's about 5,000 people in the group. And I can't tell you how often people post like, you guys, I am burnt out. I don't know what to do. I'm teaching so much. And I feel like I'm not getting enough response. And, you know, like if you are teaching something, if you like are getting into that place of fear because you're like, right. well, I need to make a living. I need to, I need to like teach what people want. And then maybe I can give them a little bit of what I know to be true. But if you focus that way, if you give it primarily, you know, primar primarily give them this fitness yoga that you don't really believe in, then that's going to burn you out. And right. in the long run, it's not going to be sustainable. Or fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah, I think that the, you know, you've hit your, the nail on the head. And I'm, that's the other thing that we do in our module on theming and integrating philosophy is we talk about um, something called the sneak attack, <laughs> which is um, where you come in and you sort of give them what they're expecting, um, particularly the workout part. So it's, it's strong flow, strong vinyasa, um, Sometimes long holds can also, or, or what people are looking for is that sort of challenge, um, progressing really skillfully through your sequencing knowledge to a really difficult advanced pose. Um, of course, providing alternatives for those who aren't able to reach that advanced pose quite yet. And you sneak in the little gems. You kind of mentioned that, but you sneak in the little gems um, to find a way uh, to bring in the sort of like mystery of yoga and the definitions of yoga, the experiences of your own practice that have depth, right? And you start to sort of um, bring those depths in. And even, even alignment can be a, a form of depth because it's sort of nerdy and, you know, you have to stop sometimes to break things down to align the body anatomically and for longevity, um, but you don't do it long enough for people to actually go, I'm not going back to that class. Mm. And as you, as you sort of continue to create rapport with students outside of class, you can kind of gauge, did they like the gems? Were the gems really like eye-opening for them or heart-opening for them? And that's what happened for me is that I went into a vinyasa flow studio and um, I, you know, I, I call it a vinyasa flow just to kind of give you the sense that it was power, you know, it was all about fitness. And I even played music, you know, I, did, I went along with the ethos of the studio. But then when I would go outside to talk with the students, they would say things to me like, every time I take your class, you like drop these little nuggets of information that help my practice so dramatically. And no one else really does that, you know, and they would say that to me, then the next class I would do a little bit more. So a lot of it is reading, reading how are your students reacting to the gems. And the other thing is like, if you kick someone's butt and you challenge them in a really hard flow, and then you stop to like break something down or bring in some really inspirational theme, um, or thematic thing that's inspired by the, the thing that they were just doing, or the breakdown of your demo or whatever, they're going to be so relieved that you stopped because you just kicked their butt. So that's another way to, to bring in demonstration, which can really hone in on a theme. And then the other thing is to practice 
honing your Dharma talk, which we call sort of like the beginning of the class, it's really nice to welcome your students and say, hi, my name is Amy. And, you know, today's theme is X. And I chose this theme because, and bring in a little story about yourself that is relatable to everybody and practice honing that talk to like one to three minutes so that no one is sitting there too long. They've just come off of work. They don't want to sit. They want to move. And you know they want to move. Um, so keep that really brief. But that's your chance to very succinctly bring in the depths of the yoga without boring people, without making people feel like they're going to be sitting there forever or, God forbid, making them sit there forever. And I think you'll find that that's the opportunity you have to sort of define what yoga is, but not in this long, annoying diatribe that they're not expecting, right? So it's really playing that balance between like, have I overstepped the expectation? And or have I delivered just enough that they're like longing for more? You want to get them longing for more of your juice, right? Like you don't want to overdo it. It's a very delicate balance. And we work on that a lot in our, in that specific module I mentioned, but those are just some of the tips that we share in that, in that module. Yeah. So, yeah. And I think that's, that's so important is learning to hone in on the essence of what you're trying to say quickly. It yeah. takes so much practice. It takes more deliberate practice than I think we, we understand when we go to, classes with teachers who are really good at it. We imagine that they're just kind of naturally good at it instead of that. No, they devoted themselves to developing this skill of speaking their truth in a really clear and clean manner. Yeah. And one of the processes we recommend in the training is that you first write it out in a journal. So write out, you know, what is your theme and what are you thinking about it and what examples in your life um, you can come up with that sort of emphasize that teaching, right? And then um, as you sort of write it out, um, you'll notice that even a class sequence arises or pose it, you know, poses that you want to do arise, um, things that you want to say arise. And the next step after that is to actually sit down at a table with a friend or your significant other and actually Share it, share your contemplation with them so that when you speak it, you go, huh, I see where I could refine this. I see where I could like shape that up a little bit so that it, it lands. And then you also can get the feedback from the person you're sharing it with. How do you see me changing this to be more succinct or does this resonate for you? Is it relevant to you, et cetera? And then you go back and you tweak your your little, you know, talking points that you want to make. And that, that's how you get a lot more succinct, I would say. Do you ever recommend that your students record themselves? Oh my God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That's one of the most powerful things you can do because you can get done with mm -hmm. delivering one and think, okay, that was pretty good. But then if you go back and listen, it's, oh my God. <laughs> how many times did I say, um, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, or good, good, nice, nice, yeah. So I want to circle back to what you were, you were talking about, the sneak attack and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, getting people tired and ready and really relieved to listen to whatever, <laughs> whatever it is you want to offer. <laughs> and I think that that does work wonderfully if that's the type of yoga you're into. But I don't think that it works if you're into really, like if you're into yin, <laughs> right. Know, that's your thing. Or you, you like really slow, gentle kind of Vinny yoga style of yoga, then forcing yourself to do a kick butt class is not, it's probably not going to work with that. You still want to make sure you're being authentic to what your passion is. Your passion's got to come first. Otherwise it's just not, this is not the type of career in as far as I can tell that you can fake it. You, you really have to be sincere. Like I'm, you know, noticing just having this conversation with you, how pumped you are about yoga, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's, that's essential. You cannot be burnt out and be an inspiring teacher. 
So what I'd love to hear from you is what are your rituals and your strategies for feeding yourself, filling your cup, and staying in that place of inspiration? The rituals that I do are um, reading books, staying in some sort of book all the time, whether it's audio or paperback or hardcover, that really keeps me inspired. The other thing is listening to podcasts like this, um, for sure. I have a podcast on most of the time to get housework done. So I'm constantly fed with like great teachings and I'll listen to my teachers. So they have um, recorded lectures, that kind of thing. Um, Douglas Brooks is one of my teachers who I actually teach the theming module with. I listen to him quite a bit. Um, staying on the mat, which is obviously, we all know that we need to do that, but we don't do it. <laughs> um, I highly recommend Glow because it has such extraordinary teachers on it. You can always catch a 20 minute or more class on there. I think 20 minutes feels like a really good, like the lowest amount of time, you know, that you could get on your mat and then try to get it up to even 90 minutes. But Glow is great because you don't have to be motivated to get on your mat. You just turn on the iPhone or your device and a class is going and you just roll out your mat and get on it. Um, that's huge. The other is attending trainings and retreats. I try to go at minimum once a year, if not twice a year. If I had my druthers, I'd be going every month to some sort of retreat or training because you're around other yoga teachers, you're in community, you're with your teacher, you're you're being fed. Um, I think when we're fed, we're just so excited about sharing it with our, with our students. So that's big. Um, and other than that, I think I'm finding a lot of nourishment in the kitchen lately too, just cooking for myself and doing all the, all the self-care things, um, staying on top of that so that when I walk in the room, I'm not the most stressed out, unhealthy, unvibrant, you know, just resentful person. Like I don't want to be that person. So eating well and, and exercising and doing all the things for myself. I mean, I'm a role model for everybody. I don't have to be perfect. If you smoke weed or something or whatever, it's like you can still teach yoga, but it's like you are a role model. So go in there feeling vibrant, having enough sleep, all the basics, right? <laughs> so that's pretty important to me too. I take that seriously and take the responsibility seriously. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I know that this, maybe this would be even a segue into a little bit of discussion on the business of yoga, mm -hmm. because if you're not teaching full time, it becomes a lot more difficult to justify all of that self-care, even though of course everybody needs it, right? Ideally, in an ideal world, every single human would be reading all the time, listening to podcasts all the time, having a home practice, you know, doing videos when they need to, attending trainings in whatever nourishes them, cooking and doing that type of self-care. Yes, everybody should do that. <laughs> and it's kind of a privilege. It's hard. In a place to, to not, you know, not have a 40 hour a week commitment plus children, plus aging parents, whatever it is people have going on. Mm -hmm. Now, some of it, of course, is a sense of priority. How many of us maybe spend money going out drinking and then say, oh, I can't afford to go to that yoga workshop. That's a disconnect ethically and with priorities. But the truth is that there are also a lot of yoga teachers who are truly, you know, just barely subsisting. I'm always curious to just get some perspectives on how do we prioritize? How do we turn things around and, and just make time and choose? You used that metaphor earlier with Krishna, mm -hmm. right? So how do we choose our battles here? Yeah, it's a great question. I, you know, in my book, um, I make the case that yoga teachers can earn a living. They have to 
They have to be smart about it. They also have to know what the buckets are in terms of what the income streams are that yoga teachers can make. Clearly, financial stability is like it's one of the most important things because if we can't if we can't earn a living, then we can't buy organic produce, you know, to cook in the kitchen. We can't um, perhaps buy some time, you know, to to do the things we need to to be a good teacher, et cetera. So we need to be paid. So part of it is knowing what the income streams are, what it's going to take to be educated enough to offer classes that fill those buckets. So the buckets being private yoga lessons. That's the number one highest way a non-teacher training yoga teacher can make a living. If you're not teaching privates, I don't know how you will succeed. Like, I'll just be pretty honest about that. Group classes, there's a difference, of course, between group classes at a gym, which give you a lot of exposure for privates and workshops and all these other things, and then studio classes. There are workshops you could be teaching once you're at a certain level. You could be giving seasonal workshops and series is another bucket. Series are great because you get cash up front, for example. Those go on. There's like 10 or 11 of these income streams. So knowing what those streams are and the fact that each one of them is a different kind of business model makes yoga teachers have to be these like ridiculous entrepreneurs that have all these business skills because like I said, each bucket is a different business model altogether. So you think you've mastered one and oh yeah, I'm a yoga teacher. I can master all of it. No, you have to master each skill. You know, how do you build a private clientele? How do you start doing workshops? How do you lead retreats? In a roundabout way, I'm trying to answer your question, but having some knowledge, I think starts you out on the better foot so that you are in a place where the income is coming in so that you can do the self-care, but then it's chicken or the egg, right? Like if you're not doing the self-care, you're not going to be teaching well. So I think it's really about prioritizing in terms of like a moving target of, of things that you're spinning. It's plates that you're spinning and we certainly have to spin them. And so it's, saying like, if I get up an hour earlier each day, I could fit in my meditation and making a green smoothie for myself and feeding my kids. That's going to require that I go to bed before 10, 10 p.m. because it's known that if you sleep between the hours of 10 p.m. and 6 a.m., those are the best hours to sleep, for example. So there's little like hacks you can do to manage your time. I also... You know, it takes time, but I recommend taking a time management course so that you can figure out how to balance all the priorities. And, you know, if you drive to work, you can put a podcast on about time management. So there's ways of even multitasking. I mean, I wouldn't have written the book, um, The Art and Business of Teaching Yoga, if I didn't feel the pain of how hard it is to teach yoga. I wrote it because I didn't want yoga teachers to suffer because yoga teachers are changing the world and yoga teachers are the ones who are helping humanity live an examined life and as such make the planet a better place. So it means the world to me that you ask the question, but also you know, this is like my life's work is like to make sure yoga teachers thrive. And I know it's so hard, but like the more educated you get on balancing all the plates, the more closely you will be to thriving. And we want, um, the word in Sanskrit is saubhagya. It means to flourish. And we really want yoga teachers to flourish. Me too. And it's not easy. I'm not going to lie. It's definitely not easy. I really loved what you said about each of those buckets being a different business model. We tend to come into teaching yoga pretty naive and with this sense of, oh, I want to help, I want to serve. But in our teacher training, there's almost nothing, depending, obviously, every training is very different. But most trainings that I have taught at, taken, and heard about have next to no true meaningful business education. 
And so you can read a lot of books and you can listen to a lot of podcasts and you can really devote yourself to that, which I have personally for the last five years, I've been really learning about this and I think it's fun. I used to think that marketing and business was kind of almost in opposition to yoga and how that, you know, that it really wasn't very yogic <laughs> to focus on that. And I totally think the opposite now. I think we can serve our students better by understanding business principles. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So I really love what you said about how each of these different buckets is a different business model. And so as yoga teachers, it's probably helpful to kind of pick one at a time to develop. Oh, totally. But also we need to know how they fit together. There needs to be a bigger plan, even beyond just like, okay, here's these different buckets, but which bucket feeds into which other bucket? And which bucket am I good at? Like which book bucket could I really sort of take advantage of because I, it's my gift, this bucket, like giving a private lesson is my thing, you know? Yeah. Or even which bucket happens to work really well where I live. Right, right. The people I know, the people who come exactly. to classes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, in the same way that the more teachers who are starting to offer philosophy and themes and depth in the practice to their students, like the more of us that are doing that, the culture shifts. Like right now the culture is like, there is no expectation for the depth we were talking about earlier, but we can build that culture if we do it. In the same way, we need to build the culture that yoga and transaction is not oil and water. It's actually a means, like the structure and good business is good yoga. Like Good yoga is all like, oh, I stack myself this way and I put my shoulder blade on my back and I sit tall and I like do my practice. Like that's, you know, I think of good yoga as this sort of discipline. So should we be completely undisciplined in our business as well? It's very much meshed. And the more of us that are having this conversation and the more of us who are business savvy, the more we will shift the culture of yoga away from like it's a bunch of hippies good vibes only, rainbows, unicorns, you know, let's flow and you know, whatever it is. I'm totally stereotyping, but like, you know, that's the dominant culture, I'm afraid, right? And the more conversations we have, we're going to shift that culture. Yeah, but you're speaking to something really real. And that is when we don't take it seriously as a business, we don't show up in the same way for ourselves and for our students and for the planet. Right. There is so much flakiness yes. in the yoga world and so many people like putting this beautiful face forward of, yes, oh my gosh, I really want to work with you. I really want to help. I really want to this, that, the other. And then when it comes to follow through, you're like, hello. <laughs> well, again, good yoga is disciplined and it has precision, right? Like there's so many of the um, the lineages I come from have that, that discipline and, and um, precision. And so if we would do that on the mat, why wouldn't we do that off the mat in our business dealings? And the other thing is people are like, yoga should be covered by insurance. And it's like, well, if it's going to be covered by insurance, you got to be professional. Like you can't be making this a hobby. This has to be, you know, you have to make this your profession. And when you do, you honor all yoga teachers. Every time a yoga teacher is a flake or is unprofessional or unethical, it's a stain on everybody who's trying to make a decent living at this and to be professional. And if you, if you don't charge for your yoga, right, you are, you're actually undermining other yoga teachers who really have chosen this as their career. So, and we're yoga educators, let's be clear, like professors in college get paid we are teaching people about history, philosophy, anatomy, physicality, spirituality. We're educators. We're not preachers. We're not anything else. So we are professionals and we, we should be compensated for that. And we should be good at what we do, not just the art of what we do, but the business side of it. And musicians and artists have this issue too, by the way. It's not just us. <laughs> totally. There are so many yoga teachers now, and most of them have been only teaching a few years. So there were, you know, in the 90s, there was this proliferation of teacher trainings. 
And of course, a lot of the people who take a teacher training never teach, and that's fine because they get a lot of out of it. So that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there are, you know, batches and batches of fresh-faced yoga teachers unleashed on the world, very excited, wanting to wet their feet, but probably not skilled enough yet to be a yoga professional. And that's at this stage of the game, the majority of registered yoga teachers are very new. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't seem likely to change anytime soon. So I, I'm just curious about your thoughts on this particular dynamic of how do we talk to brand new teachers in a way that lifts them up and supports them and invites them into the profession while also helping educate them on how they might be undermining the people who have been on this road for decades and really dedicated themselves to the path? Mm -hmm. You ask really good questions. <laughs> um, well, you know, I know that Yoga Alliance is very, I mean, however you feel about Yoga Alliance, they are very aware of this and they're working on it. Um, the new standards have just come out, so that's worth taking a look at. Um, the other thing I would say is that it really, a lot of this falls back on studio owners. So if you're a studio owner listening, here is my plea. I know that it's extraordinarily challenging to run a studio and to have it be viable. However, I believe that our yoga students deserve the very best teachers. And so even though it might cost more to hire a 500 hour level graduate, to be on the front lines of the studio, if there's a way you can save money in other areas or make more money or shift your marketing message, whatever it is, to be able to afford to hire 500 hour level teachers so that our newer teachers can mentor, can get under their wing, can be in the classes assisting, learning, getting the information, getting some hours under their belt, we will elevate the entire yoga community. And what's happening instead is that in order to survive, yoga studios are hiring the new graduates because they'll work for anything, because they're excited, they're enthusiastic, I don't blame them. Um, I graduate them myself, so I, I know. Um, but that what happens is they're not going to be as skilled in sharing what yoga is and doing all the things we talked about earlier, you know, like giving a succinct Dharma talk that lets people know what yoga is, that it's a practice, not an activity. Um, they're not going to be able to do that just because they've been doing it that long. There's nothing wrong with them personally. It's just they haven't really been doing it that long. It's harder to convey. It's harder to sequence to an apex pose when you're just out of yoga school um, or, or warm somebody up enough to get to advanced postures in a 60-minute practice, for example. So if we don't start hiring the 500-hour level teachers to put on our front line, I, I don't see this changing. And as it is, the 500-hour teachers that I know are teaching out of their bonus rooms because they can't get work that would, you know, would compensate them for the level of training and expertise and wisdom that they have. So they're just running classes out of their garages, literally. And um, they're not in the studios. So it's sort of like we're putting our newest army of teachers out there for the masses. And it's like those in the know go to the garage, you know, go, go up to the bonus room or whatever, or like the addition on the yoga teacher's house to, to get the real yoga, you know, and that's such a small percentage of the population is actually getting that. But what if we flipped it? I don't know. It's, it's um, a business decision for um, yoga studios, but I can, I can name a couple yoga studios that are still prioritizing this that might be interesting to study, but one of them is DIG yoga, the IG yoga in Lambertville, New Jersey. Um, another one is 
Yoga Oasis in Tucson, Arizona. Um, I'm trying to think of ones. Um, if you're in Australia, there's one in Wollongong, Australia, outside of Sydney. It's called Yunga Yoga Studio, like Young and then GA Yoga Studio. There are models for this. Places that still have 90-minute classes, um, they have, and they're putting their their 500-hour teachers on the schedule first. So I don't know if that helps. I know it's, it's hard, and I say that with love. I say it with love. I know, I know, I know how hard it is. If it weren't hard, we wouldn't need to be having the conversation. Yeah, yeah, that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> what what? What's your message for the new teachers though? Because I know I'm, I'm convinced I don't have exact data, but I'm convinced that probably 80% of my listeners have been teaching less than five years. Yeah. I mean, keep at it, be patient. Um, I think that getting under an older, more experienced teacher is not necessarily older, but someone who's been at it longer, getting under their wing and asking them if, if, and assist is only going to build your knowledge base, your experience base, but it also might even give you some opportunities um, to choose, you know, if, if somebody that you're assisting says, hey, can you come and teach at our studio, you might get an opportunity. So it's, but also it isn't the reason you should be mentoring with them don't do it for publicity, right? But that is some, uh, that is a side effect that might occur for you. And the other thing I would say is, is if you are privileged enough to be able to come to trainings, keep at it, get your 500 hour certificate because it means you're going to be around other experienced teachers. You're going to be um, adding to your knowledge base and um, getting around people. It's a networking opportunity for you as well. So, your motivation should always be learning more about yourself. You're doing these trainings to learn more about yourself. That's your primary motivation. The stuff that comes along with it, the networking, the opportunity, the, even the knowledge in some sense is the cherry on top of that. But your primary goal should be the realization of who you are. And that is what's going to make you an excellent teacher. And that's what's going to make you a mentor to others. It's going to make you an inspiration to the people in your community. But if you're just doing it for money, you're doing it for, for publicity or anything like that, if that's your first priority, don't expect to succeed, honestly. Um, th those are just side benefits. Is there anything else that you want to share about teaching the deeper teachings of yoga, about the intersection of yoga and business? I would say, you know, again, just what I said before, I'll repeat it. I think it bears repeating, but the more of us yoga teachers who are integrating themes and philosophy into our classes, the more of us who are studying business and marketing and unapologetically coming in, not in a snooty way or in an entitled way. I want to make that really clear. <laughs> we're, we're living into the notion that yoga teachers deserve to be compensated for their time if we indeed are also professional, right? If we're professional, then we can ask for that level of, of recognition and compensation. Um, but it means we should be studied in it, right? We should know, um, know about the different buckets, et cetera. Get yourself knowledgeable. And then the more of us that are living in that kind of culture, I think that it changes the overall yoga culture so that it's like we're lifting all of us up. The more we represent in a really powerful way like that, the more we will lift everybody up. And again, it isn't, um, I guess it, it, it's worth repeating, not in an entitled way. Always think about how can you serve the places where you work? What's the benefit to them? And when you find that balance between like, don't be a pushover and how can I serve? How can I be a benefit to you? Um, that, that tricky balance, that sweet spot is what we're looking for. 
It is a tricky balance though, don't you think? Because there, there's also the tendency on the one hand for yoga teachers to give too much and mm-hmm. to be overly thinking about serving and helping other people and feeling responsible, for example, oh, I can't, even though I'm only making $20 a class, my students would miss me. And right. so I have to keep teaching that class because they right. need me. Yeah, you can't be a pushover, but I also hear so many times uh, teachers coming in and making de- like making demands because they should get this and not thinking about the student, like how is it for the studio? So I do think that it's, it isn't black or white. We have to come in with a kind of sensitivity and, and a balance with it. So yeah, it's, and that's not easy. <laughs> it does pull you back into the teachings of yoga though, where, okay, so we need Arta. We need our, you know, our needs to be met in order to mm-hmm. fulfill our Dharma. We need to have a little bit of detachment and dispassion in order to evaluate opportunities and say, okay, you know what, even though these people are loving this class, the truth is they're going to be okay without me. There are mm-hmm. other, <laughs> there are other yoga teachers. There may be somebody else who could just help them just as much as I can. And for me, this is more draining than it is feeding for them. Yeah. I mean, it's like weighing the pros and cons, right? Right. But not, but yeah. if we let our, if we let our, our stories get in the way, then right. we're much less likely to make a skillful decision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we, we do need to practice that vairagya. We need mm-hmm. to practice stepping out of the flow of the emotional state just to, just to be present with reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so what I, so this feels like it's kind of integrating the whole conversation because it's so fun for me. I love (laughs) nerding out. Well, yoga philosophy is business or Mm -hmm. can be business and you can do business from a foundation of ethics and complete alignment Mm -hmm. with the teachings of yoga. And that's, I think what, what this new paradigm that both you and I are passionate about is, is all about. Yeah. I mean, I think it's inseparable, right? Like if you're living the yoga teachings and you find how it permeates every aspect of your life, whether it's business or relationship, and you can kind of map it right onto the teachings. Exactly. And vice versa. (laughs) Well, this was a super fun conversation, Amy. I know that you have a ton of different offerings that yoga teachers might want to check out. Where's the best place to find you? The best place for yoga teachers is 90monkeys.com. So it's the number nine zero and then monkeys, plural.com. And another one, you know, people have been telling me great things about the book, The Art and Business of Teaching Yoga that I wrote with my partner, Taro Smith. And people seem to really like the book and it just came out with an audio version. So you can fold your laundry while you're, <laughs> while you're listening to the book. So I, and I narrated it myself. So I'm really excited about that too. Well, that's awesome. Yeah. So that's teacher wise. Well, thank you so much for coming on and having this conversation with me. Thank you for all the work that you're doing. Likewise. I've got to join your Facebook group. Clearly, maybe I already am and I don't know it. We'll, ch- we'll check. But, we'll check. <laughs> yeah, but your work is wonderful. We need more of this. Absolutely. So much good stuff. I really love that conversation. I hope you did too. Right now, I'm feeling really especially grateful to have this as my job, to get to be having these conversations with yoga teachers, both new and really experienced. It's lighting me up like I haven't been lit up in a really long time. So thanks to all of you who are listening for being part of it. Right now, I'm also in the thick of my 100 Conversations Part 2 project. You might remember if you've heard a bunch of episodes that the original idea for this podcast came during a time when I had 100 conversations with yoga teachers. And these were yoga teachers all across the spectrum, brand new teachers, teachers who'd been teaching 30 years. 
And I just love these conversations so much that I wanted to keep them going. And I started the podcast based on that. Now I'm doing a hundred more. I don't record these conversations. They're private conversations. And I'm just focused a little bit more. I've narrowed the focus to talking to newer yoga teachers, yoga teachers who have a basic training and have been teaching a little while and are starting to think about an advanced training, but haven't pulled the trigger yet, haven't either chosen an advanced training, aren't sure how to choose it, or just aren't sure if they're ready or not yet. I did send an email out to my list about this and got a huge response. My inbox was flooded with new appointments, which is really exciting and a little bit daunting. Um, The last time I did this project, it took me four months to get through 100 conversations. This time, I think I'm probably, I mean, it's going to take like maybe two months just because I do have limitations in my schedule and I can't be having the conversations 24-7. If you fit that description, you've been teaching a little while, you haven't taken an advanced training, but you'd like to, then I'd love for you to grab one of the spots that are still available. You can find a link in the show notes or find me on social media, Yoga Teacher Resource. I'm pretty easy to find and there'll definitely be a link like on my Instagram profile and things like that. If you're not on my email list yet, I really think you should sign up. I send out all kinds of bonus content for the podcast and other opportunities that you probably won't hear about or you might very easily miss if you're not getting emails from me. I also send out just right as soon as you join a download of 100 yoga class theme ideas that a lot of yoga teachers have told me is really, really helpful for them. So you can go to teachingyoga.net slash join. That'll give you the link to sign up for my email list. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your dedication to your practice and your dedication to teaching and sharing the wisdom and the practice and the benefits of yoga with your students. 